peace to you from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Let us pray. We praise you, great God, for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, who died but is risen and rules over all. We praise you that we are reconciled to you through your Son. Because he lives, we look for eternal life, knowing that nothing past, present, or yet to come can separate us from your great love made known in Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray that you would send your Spirit and be present with us this day so that we might be truly blessed and encouraged and edified and also, most importantly, praise you for your goodness and great glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our hymn is number 270, Good Christian Men Rejoice and Sing. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Let us, therefore, rejoice by putting away all malice and evil and confessing our sin with a sincere and true heart. Let us make that confession together. Almighty and most holy Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the plans and desires of our own hearts We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we've done those things which we ought not to have done. 
Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Spare those who confess their faults. Restore those who are penitent according to your promises declared to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, that we might hereafter live a godly and righteous life to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. By his death, our sin is forgiven. By his resurrection, we are raised into the new life of God. I declare to you as a minister of the gospel that all those who have faith in Jesus Christ and repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sin. This is the good news of the gospel. We say together, praise be to God. People of God live by faith and not by sight. The Apostle Paul told the church, we walk by faith, not by sight. Hebrews tells us that Abraham was called out to a place that God would give to him as an inheritance, and he lived in it as the land of promise among the people who already dwelt there. The people who by sight, by visual sight, looked like they already possessed the land and it was their land. And yet God had promised that he would carve out a place in this world and settle Abraham's descendants in that land. Abraham didn't see that with his visual sight, but he walked with faith in that land and uh, trusted that God would do what he said he would do. Israel traveled toward that land after they were delivered from Egypt, and they were required to believe before they ever laid eyes on, on that place. And so we must live by faith as the people of the kingdom of God according to the word of Jesus Christ. It's a kingdom that has already begun in this world. We cannot see it in its outward visible glory and uh, dominion over this whole earth, but it is present. Jesus Christ has begun his kingdom in this world. The church is made up of the people who belong to that kingdom, and so we live with faith as we live according to the ways of that kingdom following our Lord and Savior. We are like those people, uh, the people of Israel, who had to live by land as they traveled towards the, uh, live by faith as they traveled towards the promised land. So we are to begin to live now as things have changed, as if, uh, not as if, but because things are now different with the coming of Jesus Christ who brings the kingdom of God into this world. We are to live according to that way, even if we can't see it, even if we have to live by faith. For this is God's will for us in Jesus Christ, and let us say, Amen. Our hymn is number 85, The Lord's My Shepherd, I'll Not Want. Yes. 
As Christ's beloved people, let us bring our prayers to our Heavenly Father. Ever-living God, our Heavenly Father, you bless us with the life that you give through Jesus Christ, and you keep us in this land of the living. We thank you for healing us from the sickness of sin. Through Jesus Christ, your eternal Son, you have given us your life, and you have blessed us with the riches of your kingdom. You have been faithful to us. So we ask now that you would hear our prayers made through Christ, who is the faithful one, whose intercession for us never ends, who carries us as we walk and pass through this world. We ask you to mercifully hear us and grant that we who have been given a hearty desire to pray may, by your mighty aid, be defended and comforted in all dangers and troubles. Hear our prayers as we each have a sense of the troubles around ourselves. Lord of hosts, as you have made your church to share in the victory of Christ, so make your church across this world to be more than conquerors by standing firm in its faith in Jesus. We pray for the Christians and the people who are in Ukraine and Afghanistan, Syria, Sudan, Myanmar, China. We pray you would bring an end to Russia's aggression and that these nations would strive for order and that their government would be, become good and that humans could flourish and there would be peace in the cities. By your grace, let your church rest in your abundant care, even if it is persecuted, mocked, or outlawed. And we pray for the Christian communities in the Middle East, North Korea, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and other countries that attack the proclamation of Christ. Here are our prayers for the people in these nations. Almighty Lord, though the nations rage, you utter your voice and the earth melts. And as your word has gone forth into the world, may the nations be subdued as they hear the proclamation of the word. Let women and men and children from every race and every tongue praise the name of Jesus Christ. Hear our prayers for the proclamation of the gospel. Bless the world with governments that bring peace and stability and justice to their lands. May it promote tranquility and justice, humility, under the law or the order of your law and your creation. And in so doing, may your people be able to live quietly following the way of our Savior Jesus Christ and loving our neighbors. We pray this for all nations, and we also remember our own nation. And for those who lead us, for our president, our congressmen and women, our governor, the Supreme Court, O Lord, hear our prayers for those who rule over us. Merciful Savior, attend to the proclamation of the gospel so that the deaf will hear and the blind see. May the ones who do not believe repent and receive by faith Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of the world. Build up your church, make her strong in every place where your people have been gathered together. We pray that those Christian communities, your church in all these lands, would grow and be strong and faithful to Christ and his word. Here are our prayers for Grace Reformation Church in Indiana, their pastor Matthew Barker, also Everett Hennis in Hillsdale, 
And for Dale Van Dyke, John Terrell, Michael Scout in Grand Rapids as they pastor the churches there. In addition, we pray for the Christians in Uganda and Ethiopia and the missionaries who serve there, especially we pray for James Folkerts and Charles Jackson and their families. Hear our prayers. Our gracious Lord, we ourselves have no life apart from you. We praise you for the abundant life that is in Jesus Christ. Grant us the saving health each one of us needs, whatever our condition is. And we pray that we would continue to love you and serve you. Hear our prayers for those with medical and spiritual needs, for Eduardo, for Frida, Julie, Michael, Luca, Fawn, Jeff, and our friends Becky, Karen, Chris, Bob, Tom, Phil, Tammy's family, Angie, Gladys, Dominique, and others we name to you in silence. May the gospel of Christ continue to be effective and more people added to this church where they may grow, live in the grace and love of Jesus Christ and grow in faith and in the ministry of the word together. To you we pray, our Father, in the unity of the Spirit, through Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord.
Please be seated. And join with me again in praying for God's illumination on our reading. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for uh, the fact that you have, um, for so long, you spoke directly to um, your people and that that was written down and that you have put us in a day and age when that... uh, when your word is clearly available to us, when we can read it and talk about it and ponder it without fear of oppression. And we thank you for sending your spirit to help us understand it. And we pray that your spirit would be with us this morning and that in our reading of your word that we would be edified and that you would um, cause us to uh, hear um, and open our ears to what you would have us uh, hear and know. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Our Old Testament reading is from Deuteronomy, chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. <clears throat> then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. Then the Lord said to me, You have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people, You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall purchase food from them for money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water of them for money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you, so you have lacked nothing. So we went on, away from our brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, away from the Arabah road, from Elath and Ezion Geber. And we went and we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. Our Psalter response, which we recently sang together, we will now uh, recite together as well from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. He He leads me in paths of righteousness. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, for you are with me. They comfort me. In the presence of my enemies, my cup overflows. All the days of my life. Forever. Our epistle reading comes from First Peter chapter two. First Peter 2, verses 18 through 25. Servants, 
Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Finally, a gospel reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 10. John 10, verses 22 through 30. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe, because you are not a part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So I and the Father are one. The word of the Lord. I once wrote something and had uh, the cows um, edit it, review it, and uh, Julie's comment was that I, when I write, I need a bucket of commas. And I thought about that when I looked at the title I put in, in the, for this sermon, Trust in the World. Um, that could easily be misunderstood. I should have put a comma under trust, but anyway, you'll see in a minute. Trust in the real world, not trust in the real world. Okay. Well, uh, many years ago, I read a blog by Russell Saltzman, who was a Lutheran pastor. He's retired now, I believe. And he wrote this blog. It was an outstanding blog. He'd been a pastor for many years in the heartland of our country around Kansas City. And some time ago, he told, or in this blog, uh, he told a story about a woman in one of the first congregations he served. And these are his words. I'm always stunned in my encounters with people who, with every cause for bitterness, nonetheless exhibit a good cheer and a trusting heart. Christina Sorensen was one of them. She was born in 1893, and she was my parishioner and my friend the last three years of her life. 
still a vigorous woman until she died in 1983 at age 90. Mrs. Sorensen, I never called her anything else, was about the poorest old woman I'd ever met. She lived on a ramshackle farm and looked like she had stepped out of the grapes of wrath. Her life was one tragic episode after another. Her young husband went off to the Great War in 1917, World War I, and came back an invalid from mustard gas. Her farm had been foreclosed in the 1932 Depression and was saved only by a penny auction. She loved her son, but he was drinking himself to death. And yet, despite all that, there was a charm about her and a humor and an unfeigned joy. And Saltzman goes on to talk about her trust in the Lord throughout her life. Now, I'm sure that you've heard stories like this about other Christians. Perhaps you know Christians who just seem to exhibit this, this trust in God, even though they've had to undergo many, many difficult things in their life. Christians who are confident in God's care and protection of them through their lives. Stories like Mrs. Sorensen take hold of us because they are a commitment, they show a commitment and trust in the Lord in the face of hardship and even the very oppression of life. Psalm 23 is a psalm about trust in the Lord in the midst of the realities of this life. And it's been a favorite in Christian instruction and worship. Christians, not to mention Jews, have uh, used this psalm and enjoyed teaching it and learning about it and, and just using it in worship as part of the liturgy of the worship. I can remember when I went through confirmation class at the church I, I attended in my youth. It was in ninth grade, and it was expected there that you would go through confirmation class before you gave your profession of faith. And there wasn't much to this class. It was rather unfortunate. We didn't do a lot. There wasn't a lot talked about, not a lot of teaching in it or anything. But we did have to memorize a few things. And we were expected to know the books of the Bible in order, memorize the Apostles' Creed, and Psalm 23. The psalm was considered one of the standards for the Christian life. Over the centuries, the church has loved to sing this psalm in worship. If you, if you look back at, uh, I think it was number, was it 85, uh, whatever the uh, number was for our singing of that psalm in, in our worship today, you'll notice there are several other editions or versions of Psalm 23 as well. I think we have three such songs about Psalm 23 in our hymn book. Christian art has used the image of the shepherd in the psalm holding his staff in one hand and a lamb in the crook of his arm. And it expresses the Christian's intimate relationship with the Lord or the Lord's protection in the valley of death. And Christian art from very, very early on. It's funny, you go into the catacombs in Rome or, or in some other places and you'll see some of the, the painting on the wall that shows the good shepherd. That, that image um, was very important from the beginning in the church. Many of the traditional church sanctuaries that have stained glass windows have one panel picturing Jesus as the good shepherd holding a lamb. So it's just been an outstanding icon in the church, iconic image uh, throughout church history. Psalm 23 has been regularly used at funerals. I've conducted many funerals, and uh, often that's one of the passages that I use to bring comfort to the family, just to read Psalm 23. It's trust in the face of death. And this psalm has been of great comfort to those who have lost a loved one. Psalm 23 is a confession of trust in God. And you can't miss the imagery. 
The Lord is my shepherd. It's very personal, very intimate language. The Lord is my shepherd. Until recently, the image of the sheep with their shepherd was as well known as a McDonald's sign um, is today. You know, we all know what we see when we, we pass a McDonald's sign. Well, the image of a shepherd with his sheep was a very well-known image. Now, it may not have always been sheep. Not every uh, agrarian society always has sheep. But most people were well acquainted with the image of a herdsman or herdswoman tending the animals in a field. Although sheep were common in many cultures, in some places it may have been flocks of goats or cattle. Whatever the case, the image of the shepherd with his flock or herd was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. The shepherd standing watch over his sheep, carrying a lamb in his arms, gently directing his flock with a long stick, or maybe using that same stick to chase off predators. And the sheep know the shepherd and respond to his calls with soft bleating, bleating. I uh, saw something of this when I served a church in western Kansas. There was a man in our church named Frank, Frank Weedle, who insisted on being called a cattleman, not a rancher. For some reason, there was a difference for him. He owned, more, uh, he owned about 500 head of cattle, and one day he invited me to join him in weaning calves. So the language with cattle is pretty precise. You know, a cow is female, steer a cow is a female, the bull is male, of course. A steer is a unbred uh, male offspring, and a heifer is a female unbred offspring, offspring. And so we were to go out. I learned all this when I was out there, because before that, it was just cows. Um, but we went out there to wean the calves, separate the heifers from their mothers, and there were quite a few of them. So we drove out about to a pasture about 40 miles north of town, um, and I was very eager to help. I even bought some cowboy boots to fit into it. They were too small. Um, but when I got there, I didn't see a single animal in the pasture. It was rolling hills, and I didn't see a single animal. I saw the pen, the corral, where we were going to put them, but no animals. So I just watched, see what Frank would do. And I, I learned, he told me that he'd hired some true cowboys to go out and drive the cattle to the corral. And they showed up in their truck, got their horses out. They looked like cowboys. And they rode off um, to, to try to drive the cattle back towards us. Frank and I stood there, and we watched the men on their horses trot off into the hills to wrestle up the cows and their heifers. And we waited for about 30 minutes. And then Frank got a little impatient and decided he would see if he could call them in. So he walked out into the pasture, into the middle of the pasture, and he whistled this very distinct kind of whistle. And immediately... I could see the cattle come running from all sides, just came running in, sort of made the cowboys superfluous. They came running in, and then the cowboys showed up, and they helped us uh, separate the animals. It was a really fascinating scene. But you see, the cattle, the, the cows, knew their herdsman, you might say, their shepherd. They knew Frank. Until recently, the shepherd and his sheep was a regular scene for most people. So what Frank did would have been fairly common, whether it was cattle, sheep, goats, whatever, it would have been fairly common for most people to know about that, even if they didn't own animals. But now most of us live in cities. 
Where the only sheep or bovine, you know, cattle, we see are in petting zoos or in fields maybe on the interstate when we drive by. The closest urban image I can think of to the shepherd and his sheep is our relationship with our cats and dogs. That's maybe the best. And there are some people who I see them walking and they have a herd of dogs with them, so maybe that counts. But that's about the closest we come. And yet, in spite of our life, we can still resonate with the imagery of the psalm. Isn't that what's so powerful about this kind of an image? Is that we can still resonate with it, even if we haven't been around shepherds and sheep. Because it's a very beautiful way of expressing trust in God. It's a whole lot more, it sticks with you a whole lot more than saying, trust in God. This one sticks with you. It creates this image, this beautiful way of expressing it. Now, it sets before us trust in God in life lived. Not some kind of ideal life, but in life lived. The psalmist is one who has lived in this world. Psalm 23, with Psalm 23, we don't have this idyllic hymn, this, this beautiful sort of ode to, um, to some ideal picture of life. We don't have that. The psalmist isn't somebody enraptured by some ideal picture of life. The psalmist knows the realities of this life, the life that you live in and the life he lived in. The psalmist needs strength. There's lack in this world. There's want in this world. There's fatigue. Not having the basic essentials of life like a place to live or food or a job or you know whatever it might be. There's also a lack of health in this life, a lack of peace, this life, this life in this world, uh, this is life in this world, and the psalmist knows it. He's very aware of it, and he expresses that in his psalm. The psalmist trusts God with the lack that is in this life. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The psalmist knows that the way to walk through this world or the world we, uh, the, uh, the, where we live is obscure. It's hard to see it. What is the good life? What is the way of righteousness? How do we walk with God? What is the way that leads to peace and joy? Now, today, everyone in true democratic spirit is going whichever way he or she pleases. There's like 330-some million people in this country and 330 million different ways to go. That seems to be the message we get. And every single one of them is supposed to be right. And everyone's encouraged to go the way that he or she pleases. So we make our own path, and then we get down that path a ways, and we discover that we've chosen what we've chosen in life leads to disaster and ruin. Destroyed marriages, children confused and lost, crush, crushing debt, guilt and fear, alienation and despair, dislocation, society unraveling. It takes a while to get to some of these places, but we find that out that maybe the way we've chosen or the way we have chosen ends up a very, very disastrous way to walk. The psalmist trusts God with the path through life. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The psalmist trusts God to lead him on the way through this, in this life that leads to what is good and right and, and beautiful. The psalmist knows there are enemies that threaten in this life. Not just human enemies, but even more sinister powers in this world. There's death, there's sin, there's the devil. 
There are also malicious powers that lurk in the shadows of governments. There are corporations, institutions, where there are, more, uh, where there are malicious powers, but you can't quite put your hand, hand on them. These powers often prevent food from reaching people. Crush, they crush the poor. They corrupt the young. They hide behind the pretense of doing good, and yet they're not good. Dangerous powers that would hunt us down and destroy us. They're out there in this life. And the psalmist knows it. He trusts God with the enemies in this world. The Lord is my shepherd. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. So Psalm 23 is a confession of trust in this world, in this life. But this is not merely a private feeling of trust. The psalmist recognizes that he is a participant in God's work of salvation in history. And for this, we have to think a little bit for a moment and kind of broaden out to the story of Israel. There's a remarkable correspondence between many of the phrases in Psalm 23 and the exodus of Israel from Egypt into the wilderness. A remarkable correspondence. In order to leave Egypt and walk through the wilderness, Israel needed strength. Otherwise, they would have collapsed. They would have just died out in the wilderness. The, the, whole, the whole Israel project would have just died out. They lacked food and water. Fatigue and exhaustion would have undone them without the Lord's strength for them. And the way to go. What's the way to go through the wilderness? It was not just a matter of crossing the desolate land. It wasn't just a matter if they had been so lucky as we are to have GPS. It wasn't, that wasn't the way. God had brought them out of Egypt to walk in obedience to him. But you see, that's not a way that's marked out on the ground. That's not a way that Siri or GPS is going to tell you how to walk. There was no sign that said, holy highway, next exit, make sure you take it. Israel did not know how to go the way of the Lord. And what is more, there were the enemies on every side. There were the Egyptians behind them. There were the Ammonites and Moabites in front of them. And these were the enemies that you could see. These were just some of the enemies they could see. There was also the enemies of doubt and unbelief or the temptation to merge with the other nations and worship their gods. Those kinds of enemies were also out there. The psalmist connects his trust with the, save, the Lord's saving work in the exodus from Egypt and in the wilderness. And let me show you how he does this, excuse me, with a few of the phrases from the psalm. The, Lord says, uh, the psalm says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We heard Psalm two, uh, Deuteronomy 2 read, and it tells of the Lord's presence with Israel in the wilderness. And Psalm, I keep saying that, Deuteronomy 2 says, these 40 years the Lord your God has been with you and you lacked Nothing. The psalm says, He leads me beside still waters, or the waters of placidity is, is actually a little bit more of what it's talking about. Still waters, waters at rest. In Numbers 10, the metaphor of placid waters is associated with the ark leading the people. The Lord leading the people with the ark went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. And resting place is the same word in Psalm 23, that is still or placid waters. So you've got this connection in the words. The psalm says, he leads me in paths of righteousness. In Exodus 15, it's, it's Miriam's song after Israel is delivered from Egypt, 
when they stood on the banks of the sea looking out into the wilderness. Can you imagine these enemies, this, this power that had kept you captive and God had come in and freed you and then he parted the waters and brought his people through the waters and now they stood on the other side and they looked behind them and they saw the defeated Egyptians and then they turned around and looked forward and they saw wilderness. Just a vast wilderness. Well, Miriam sang this song. She said, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. You've guided them, and you're still guiding them. And she praises God for that. And in addition, the word translated abode is actually the same word used in Psalm 23 for pasture. Psalm 23 says, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The book of Jeremiah uses that same image. It's a very powerful image, the shadow of death. He uses that image for the wilderness when he talks about Israel, where Israel went. Jeremiah says, The Lord who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, he's describing this shadow of death there. The psalm says, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And Deuteronomy 20, in Deuteronomy 20, the Lord says to Israel, When you go forth to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you will not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He's with them, and the psalm says, You are with me. And one more, the psalmist says, You prepare a table for me. Psalm 28 applies that language of a table to Israel in the wilderness. It says, the people spoke against God, saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? And then Psalm 78 goes on to say, that's precisely what God did. He made the water gush out of the rock. He opened the doors of heaven. It rained down manna upon them. The Lord caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and it rained meat on them like dust. He prepared a table for them in the wilderness. The psalmist expresses his trust with all those people who participated in God's history, uh, salvation history. You see, it's not just about his trust. He's expressing trust with all those people who'd gone before him, who had participated in what God had done in history. And it continues on. It doesn't stop with Israel. It continues on to Jesus Christ. Jesus himself makes this very obvious when he says, I am the good shepherd. And that would have echoed this psalm. He said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. Jesus is the one who fulfills God's salvation for us. There's this big, huge history there of God's work of salvation in this world. Israel had experienced it, and then it came to fruition in Jesus Christ. And that history of God's salvation continues on to us. By drawing you to Jesus and forgiving your sin, God continues to be at work leading you, guiding you, protecting you, and spreading a table before you. Because of the Lord's saving work with this psalm, Psalm 23 resonates with us. In saving work with us. You must not disconnect your personal trust in the Lord from God's salvation history, which tends to be one of the hallmarks of Christianity in the United States anyway. We tend to disconnect our personal life, our Christian life, our trust in Jesus Christ from 
God's work in salvation history. Saving trust in Christ has become for many more a feeling inside or a mood that we have. And I hope you feel trust, but you can't leave it at that. It is trusting that you've been brought into the marvelous work that God has, has done and is doing that extends all the way back into the past with Israel and into the future with Jesus Christ. When you trust in the Lord, your trust is part of the trust of all of God's people. It's not just your own. So when you say you trust in the Lord, you are speaking like a choir, as, as a voice in a choir of all the other people of Christ who say they trust in the Lord. It's one voice of trust, and you're part of that, and it extends into God's work in salvation history. So you trust in Christ. Your trust in Christ has a history, the history of God's salvation. It comes within life. And I like how an old professor of mine said it, James Mays, he puts it like this, trust has an environment, and that environment is life. Life is the context for your trust. In this life, strength must be found, a way must be walked, harm and evil threaten, enemies persist. You cannot somehow have trust that's independent of life in this world. It's not just some commitment that you made years ago. You must put trust into action in life. That's the environment of trust in Christ. Now, it's all very well to feel trust in God and confess it, but trust is something that you must do in life. When you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, when you are in the presence of your enemies, when you are trying to find the way, Trust in Christ is what you have to do when you suffer a terrible illness or someone tries to hurt you or you must face a temptation over and over again or you go off to college and you start hearing arguments thrown at you against believing in God and Jesus Christ or you lose your job or you try to find the morally responsible way to live in this world or when you get married and raise children or when you don't marry, when you grow old and when you lay dying. Trust in Christ has to be done in those situations. And that's exactly the environment of Mrs. Sorensen's trust. She trusted Christ in her life, not outside of it, not as some great feeling or idea, but in her life. Her trust came when her husband came back an invalid from World War I. She trusted Christ when the Great Depression hit this country, and she did not know what would happen to her farm. She trusted in the Lord when her son became an alcoholic. She trusted God when she was 90 years old. Her trust was that God had sent his salvation into this world with with Israel and in Jesus Christ, and she was part of it. Her trust was that God is working out his purpose of redemption in this world, that he's the creator and he will finish what he started in spite of sin and his enemies. And she trusted that Jesus is the good shepherd and no one shall snatch his sheep out of his hand. And that's what you are to do. Each of you are to trust that Jesus Christ is your shepherd in this life no matter what happens to you or where you are. And together as a church, you must trust Jesus, your good shepherd, in this life. 
Actually, the need for trust is more apparent in a small church than a large church. I've learned this uh, before. This is the second smaller church that I've been uh, in as a pastor, well, as, as, a, as a member, anyone, anywhere. Um, before that, I grew up in a church of about 1,000 members in Greeley, Colorado. Um, I attended a church in Richmond, Virginia that was about, about the same, about 1,000 members. I was an intern at a church, a Presbyterian church in Dallas, Texas, with 8,000 members, um, 13 pastors, a session of 60 elders, uh, four billionaires. I mean, they had everything. But it's in a small church where you see that the trust has to be there. The larger church, it's a little bit more hidden. Large churches have more resources. They have a bigger structure. They can give the impression that they're secure. It can give the impression that everything's fine and they can just lay back and trust doesn't seem to be as necessary. But immense sanctuaries, fat budgets, and many people do not make the church secure. They just don't. And there are plenty of stories of these kinds of churches crashing within a decade or the next generation. In fact, that happened to some degree to that church in Dallas. What makes every church secure is Jesus holding, Jesus holding them in the crook of his arm. That's what makes every church secure. And that's what makes you secure in Christ, him holding you in the crook of his arm. Now you must trust Jesus to lead you forward. Let us pray. O Holy Father, whose Son Jesus is the good shepherd of your people, grant that when we hear his voice, we may know him who calls us and that he calls us each by name, and that we may follow where he leads, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please stand with me. Let us confess our faith with the creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made. For us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. 
Our hymn as we prepare to come to the Lord's table is number 424, Shepherd of Souls, Refresh and Bless. Let us offer this to the Lord and pray together. Eternal God, our sovereign Lord, we acknowledge all we are, all we have is yours. Give us such a love of your infinite grace and holy sacrifice on the cross that we may gratefully love you and our neighbor. To you we all honor and glory in the name of Jesus Christ. The Lord was out in the wilderness 
at one point when he had the crowds before him. And at other times he spoke in a way that was very pastoral. Pastoral implies shepherding. And he said these words once. Hear the words of our hear these words. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my oath yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then Jesus came to the upper room before his death with his disciples, and he instituted this meal. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. As you accept this gracious invitation, you confirm that you are trusting Jesus Christ alone as your Savior from sin and that you're endeavoring with all your heart to obey him. That simply means it is your desire to obey him and you're seeking to do that. It doesn't mean you're perfect at it. And that you are seeking to live with love and concern for your fellow Christians with whom you'll be eating and drinking. Now, I realize that you've been hearing these words, some of you, for 27 years. Um, I mean, I do change it around a bit, but you hear these words over and over again, and um, I am struck with the fact that we don't always take them to heart, and I just came back from a presbytery meeting where these words are not taken to heart, not by the presbytery, but by some individuals in some churches. And it's one of those things we hear it and we just don't think about it, or when the time comes, we're caught up more with our passions and our issues than we are with what this meal is about and our fellowship with one another as a family in Christ with our Lord. And so please, again, hear these words that are very important, that we seek to live with love and concern for our fellow Christians with whom we'll be eating and drinking. Coming to the Lord's table, we cannot harbor grudges or unforgiveness towards each other, and that does displease the Lord. He wishes that those things to be set right, and he's taught us to do that. Um, if we have something against someone else, we're to go to them and, and seek to uh, work it out with that person. There may need to be confession of sin, but also forgiveness. This is very important and, and is lost in our society and sometimes gets lost in the church. It is my privilege as Christ's minister to invite all who have been baptized, who have professed their faith in Jesus Christ and our community members of the Christian church to come to this, the Lord's table. Join with me now in giving thanks to God for our new life in Christ and our salvation in Him. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give Him thanks and praise. It is indeed good and right always and everywhere to give you thanks, Almighty and Eternal Father. For you alone have created us, and you give us all manner of good things in this life. And for those things, we do give you thanks, but we especially thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to die upon the cross for us. And in the joy of this Easter season, we celebrate the sacrifice of Christ, and we praise you with the host of heaven that are forever saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory, Hosanna in the highest. And so our... Prayers 
and our words reach up to heaven and join with their praise of you. And we do remember, as we participate in this meal and the work of your salvation in this world through Christ, we remember as part of that participation that he who dwelt with you became a man and joined us in the flesh. And we remember that he was obedient, even as he was delivered up to die, he obeyed you in every way. And we remember that you have glorified him, that he was despised and rejected by people, but you raised him up. So we glorify him and exalt him, who is the author of life, through whom you've created all things, and he is the victor of our salvation. And we sing and say that praise to you that the church has said also, from very early on, dying you destroyed our death, rising you restored our life, Lord Jesus come in glory. We thank you that Jesus lives and does come to be present with us. So come, O Holy Spirit, now and make this meal holy so that our eating of this bread and our drinking of this cup may be for us a communion in the body and blood of Jesus Christ, that we may be nourished and fed by him. Give us faith in him, and in this way may the new life of the risen Lord be our life both now and forever. Through Christ and with Christ and in Christ in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory are yours, Heavenly Father, forever and ever. We make our prayer with one voice, saying together, Amen. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. But he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. Merciful Father, you gave your Son, Jesus Christ, to be the good shepherd, and in his love for us, to lay down his life and rise again. Keep us always under his protection and give us your grace to follow in his steps. And this we pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. The final hymn is number 580, Lead On, O King Eternal.
Please be seated, and a very good morning to you all. Uh, especially, it's uh, it's always a joy when the uh, our, our list for uh, our, our prayer list for intervention um, is uh, is matched by a lot. A lot of the names on it are are worshiping with us this morning. So for uh, for Michael and Eduardo and Luca, like it's it's really good to see you. I love you guys. Um, and uh, and thank you to uh, to John and to Randy for bringing us the music this morning. Um, I don't have a lot of uh, announcements that you won't find in life together. Um, did you want to remark on the Presbyterian meeting? Yeah. Please. So we spent... Uh, so it, there's an agenda, right? A docket. And we spent seven hours on one thing. And it was um, the results of an investigative committee looking into some charges that had been brought against a couple pastors and um, by some members of, of, church, of those churches. And uh, Mr. Roberts was the elder um, representing us. Um, yeah, it was, it was tedious. Um, at the end, you know, it, it's going forward, and there's going to be a trial that starts in a couple weeks. Um, so these things happen, and the, the good thing is I... You know, I'm troubled by some of it. I, I think some of the charges are, are not um, not well-grounded. But whatever the case, the one thing that, that you need to keep in mind with all of this is that this is a denomination that takes seriously the life and practice of the church and the faith of the church with its ministers and with the churches. And so there is discipline that happens. Uh, we, don't, we don't just let things go that are serious. And uh, people sometimes bring charges that are, are frivolous, and then those get dismissed. But when there's something serious, we deal with it. And that's a good thing, but it's not a, a pleasant thing. And it can be very, very difficult at times. And my heart goes out to these pastors um, and to those churches. Um, so we'll see what, what comes of it in the next few weeks. But we spent seven hours, and then we had all the rest of the business to do, and we just Booked through it, most of it, in the last hour, and uh, Michael and I are sending texts to each other the whole time. Um, I did want to point out to you this, uh, New Horizons is on the back, and there's enough for every household at least, maybe every person to take one, but it's um, a report from Hiro Hakobor in Ukraine, and he's talking about the ministry there during the war. So you might be interested in grabbing one of those. It's free for the taking, and um, you know, see what he has to say. Um, I think that's it. Um, are there any any announcements from the floor or general updates uh, from anyone? Mr. Cowles. I just want to let you folks know that uh, Julie is doing very well. She uh, thought about coming, but better not. Not quite well. She's feeling that we're waiting, of course, for the best results on the biopsy. My thanks and Julie's to all of you for food and transportation and companionship and love and prayers and all that good stuff. It's been, it's been edifying to say the very least. I would ask also for your prayers for my daughter. She had heart surgery uh, Wednesday and reaction to the anesthetic following that. So uh, she could use your prayers too. Thank you very much. Her name's Lisa, is that right? Lisa, yes. 
So for for those uh, joining with us at home, uh, Mr. Collins uh, reported, praise God, that, uh, that Julie's surgery went very well, um, uh, but continued prayers are requested for the biopsy. Um, and uh, also uh, gratitude was expressed by Mr. Collins for uh, the, the support of this uh, family uh, at Providence. And also a request for prayer for uh, his daughter, Lisa, uh, who had a uh, heart surgery and um, a, uh, a reaction to the anesthetic as well. So uh, continued prayers requested there. I was just going to mention the deacons are having a meeting after CE. Um, so I guess maybe in the room at the table. Okay. Uh, on the note of, uh, of CE, there will be Christian education today, uh, led by Mr. Kelly, uh, continuing in the book, uh, Gentle and Lowly. Um, I guess as far as one, one off-script thing uh, that some of, some, of us, some of us have lives that are, are permanently or currently dominated by the cycle of education and the school year, uh, but it's the time of year that um, our, uh, our, our students are graduating, our students' uh, AP tests st- start tomorrow, um, students are uh, maybe moving on from high school or looking for summer jobs or looking for permanent jobs. Our, uh, our ballet and other dancers are preparing for their recitals. So uh, for all of our, our students and teachers, um, th- this is a, a big time of year for us, and uh, certainly your prayers are, are welcome f- for those of us in that world. Um, anything else from the floor? All right, then I will wish you good morning, and uh, Christian Ed will be in whenever Mr. Kelly comes through and yells at us.